And our next scripture reading comes from the Epistle to the Hebrews, and the ninth chapter and the first 14 verses. So Hebrews chapter 9, and verses 1 to 14. So Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, and it's got the head in worship in the earthly tabernacle. Let us receive God's word. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve 
the living God. Amen. Praise God for his word. And may he bless his word to our souls and bless the preaching of his word in a little while. Good. So um, this evening we're continuing our discourse in Hebrews. Um, and the last few Sundays, the last couple of chapters, we've been looking at the Lord Jesus as high priest of the new covenant. In chapter 7, we saw that Jesus is the new high priest of a permanent priesthood. Hebrews 7, verse 23 says this. Now, there have been many of those priests, that's the, the earthly priests, the human priests of the old covenant under the law, since death prevented them continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Then last week, Dav took us through chapter 8, showing what Jesus is high priest over, chapter 8, verse 1. A high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. And that his service in the true tabernacle is one of intercession and prayer between his church, between his people and the Lord God. And then Dav gave us nine points, which you may or may not recall from last week, showing, that, showing the qualifications of Jesus in fulfilling this role for us. One, he is eternal, he lives forever. Two, he can bring us to the Father in heaven, the, the heavenly mercy seat, the heavenly holy of holies, the most holy place. Three, he saves us completely by his redemptive work on the cross. Fourthly, he always intercedes for us. Fifthly, he truly meets our needs. Six, he is holy, blameless, pure, and set aside for sinners. Seven, he is exalted above the heavens. Eight, he sacrificed himself for sinners. And nine, he is the Son of God, part of the Trinity, the three in one. Now we're going to look at verse eight this evening. Um, and then after that, depending on how much time we've got, after that, there'll be an opportunity for open prayer. Um, but as the writer reminds us that the earthly high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement just once a year to make the blood sacrifice for the sins of people. You kind of wonder who does the dusting, don't you, in the Holy Year? No one goes in there for a whole year. But that very helpfully gave us some visual aids, which we've got again this evening here. Um, of the lampstand, the table, and the altar of incense. And if anyone wants to know what these funny little things are, that's the, the flat breads. There's 12 of them, one for each of the tribes, and two stacks of six. Um, but all that has gone now. All it has gone. Um, the new is here, the new covenant. So all this has gone, and to show the old has gone under the new covenant, it's all been swept away by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that tidal wave of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. So now the covenant is in his blood. And so with that background, we're going to look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. And we're going to see there's two parts in here. The first section is one to, verses 1 to 10, outlining the physical manifestations of the earthly tabernacle and the duty of the high priest. And secondly, verses 11 to 14, illustrating how the replacement for all this, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, in heaven is so much better, and how its high priest, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is so much better. So, page uh, 1207 
1206, I believe it is in your church Bible, if you'd like to turn to those again. And remember, this, the audience for this letter, Hebrews, is the Jewish converts of Christianity. But it's instructive to us today, all these years later, as we shall see. So my, my first point is the word obsolescence. Obsolescence. So just look at verse 13 of chapter 8, just that preceding verse there. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, obsolete's a big word. How many of the children here know what word obsolete means? Anyone put their hand? What's obsolete? Go on, Indexer. Outdated. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way for it. Obsolete. It means something that's no longer produced, no longer used, or it's out of date. It's outdated. However, in this world, it's our natural instinct. We, we kind of, we have a nostalgia about things that are outdated, don't we? Things that are obsolete. So we see that like a, a traction engine, a traction steam engine, it has absolutely no practical value today in the modern world, in this century. But if you go to a steam fair in the summertime, you'll see scores of them puffing and wheezing and belching out clothes of steam and smoke. And a lot of people go there just to look at the traction engines. A lot of people spend their winters servicing them, maintaining them. It's their hobby. They love traction engines. Um, but likewise, the old covenant given to Moses is now obsolete. And these Jewish believers in the first century were harking back to those old days, the old ways. And so the whole of this book is about putting them right. Read with me, with you, with me again, if you will, in um, chapter 9 there, just the first few verses under that heading, Worship in the Earthly Tabernacle. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room. There was the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. About the, above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. In the same way, I'm not going to discuss these things in detail now. You know, maybe when we preach through other passages of the Old Testament, which we'll come to in our reading the Bible together, we may cover some of those things. But, um, but anyway, you can see here again Dav's little representation of those items. Of course, the ark famously, again, as Dave alluded to last week, has been memorialised, if you like, in film, thanks to Indiana Jones. But there is a reason, you could say, why archaeologists and historians have never found a trace of any of these things, the Ark or any of those items from the tabernacle. They were lost. They were, they were taken away when the city was plundered, and the Lord has effectively removed them from the scene. If anything like these things were ever found, it would be an object of worship. Can you imagine if if somewhere in a tomb in Egypt they dug up one of these items, you imagine Israel would probably invade the country to recover these things. There'd be wars, and, and they'd worship that thing. I mean, in Jerusalem, they worship the stones that the Temple Mount is built on. Um, so there's a reason why these things will never be found. You know, there are TV programs, and people go out looking for these things, archaeologists, but they will never be found. They will never come to light, because God, the Lord, will not allow it. He knows our human hearts. He knows people will just worship the object, the object. And there is, there is a reason because, really, we have another object of worship. 
And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for the same reason there is no temple standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. God allowed the Romans to destroy it utterly to fulfill the words of Jesus himself, that not one stone would be left on another. And if you go there now, it is really quite a, a sad sight when you see that. It became obsolete when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. He made all those things obsolete. But he made the new temple, the new temple, the temple of hearts, the kingdom of heaven. And the curtain, when Jesus died on the cross, as we've been looking at again recently, that moment when Jesus died, the curtain tore in that temple that separated the most holy place. It tore from top to bottom, symbolizing that the way is made through now. The way is made through to the Holy of Holies, to the mercy seat. The way was made open by Jesus himself. And so we read in verse 6 here in our passage. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, but never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. There is, of course, a New Testament eyewitness um, to the priestly duties, an eyewitness account. Does anyone remember whereabouts it is in the New Testament? Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to 24, we see the priest, Zechariah, burning the incense when the angel of the Lord appears to him beside the, um, beside the lampstand. And he announces the beginning of the end of the first covenant. The angel says to him, talking about John the Baptist, of course, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And of course, this tabernacle and those priestly duties, they're just a foreshadowing of the things to come. The blood that the high priest took in with him, it, that was not the final redemptive offering, scattering that on the, on, the, on the mercy seat, if you like, the atonement cover. Otherwise, why would he have to do it again and again, year after year? It was never going to be the final redemptive sacrifice and the high priest could not enter the holy of holies without it he couldn't go in without it if he did if he tried to probably be destroyed or something he entered only with the blood but as we shall see jesus entered the heavenly holy of holies through his own blood through his own blood the blood of the sin offering was sprinkled on the ark of the covenant on the atonement cover known as the mercy seat, as I said, but as long as the people were under the law and living under the old covenant, they had to do this again and again and again. Verse 8 in our reading here in chapter 9, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. That's the, the most holy place in heaven had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. So the, the Holy Spirit there, verse 9, oversaw all this. And you could argue that the appearance of the angel to Zechariah in the holy place in Luke chapter 1 was kind of evidence of that. But the value of these sacrifices were really limited. They only served for a year. It was a temporary thing until the true lamb of sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, will come. And that true 
sacrifice could be made. His perfect life given up. And his blood was not sprinkled on the atonement cover in the temple, but it was sprinkled on the earth outside the city. It was on the corrupted, fallen creation, sprinkled on us, really, to redeem us if we believe in him. Like a cleansing rain, cleansing us from our sins. And isn't it wonderful that we're set free from the law? We're set free from all this ritual, all the cleansing, all those rules and regulations they had to obey. We're set free. We're free to worship him in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our bedrooms, in a car, on the way to work, wherever you happen to be, you can worship him through prayer, through reading the word, listening to his word. The old way is obsolete, it's redundant, and the new has come. Of course, today, Jewish people still celebrate the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But now, interestingly enough, it's almost become a superstitious act. According to Jewish tradition, when you read, if you look this up on the internet, it says, um, God inscribes each person's fate for the coming year into a book called the Book of Life. And that happens on the day of Rosh Hashanah. And he waits until Yom Kippur to seal the verdict. So between uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you have to be very good in order to, to impress the Lord so that when he seals the book, he's sealing your fate for the following year. And during the days of awe, which are the days between the two, a Jewish person tries to amend their behavior uh, and seek forgiveness for all the wrongs done against God and against other human beings. And on the evening, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day is, time is set aside for public and private petitions and confession of guilt. At the end of Yom Kippur, one hopes that they've been forgiven by God. They hope they've been forgiven by God. And there are prayer services, and there are five additional prohibitions to be observed during the festival. Because in the Torah, the word soul appears five times in that section. So because it appears five times, they've got five new rules. One, no eating and drinking, so they have to fast during the daytime. Secondly, no wearing of leather shoes. And thirdly, no bathing or washing. Fourth, no anointing oneself with perfumes or lotions. And fifth, no marital relations. They wear white clothes and they go to the synagogue and they read the scrolls, they recite a prayer. And the ultra-Orthodox Jews, just in case you're wondering what the replacement is for the sacrifice, they swing chickens about their heads. That is what has become of the Old Testament atonement covenant. What a hopeless hope that is. That is no hope at all, is it? It's a long way from the writings of Moses, from the covenant worship. If Moses could look down, he'd weep, wouldn't he, if he could see what's become of the Jewish people. He'd weep. It's obsolete, like the temple and all these things, obsolete. Where does he even mention chickens in the Old Testament? I don't think they even existed in the the old world, because they were a new world. They were, chickens weren't discovered until the 13th century, I think. <laughs> chickens. It's terribly sad. It's really a tragedy that the Lord's chosen people, the people of Israel, cannot see the obsolescence of the religion they're still following today. And the truth of their own prophets, which they still have in the Torah set out, which talks about Jesus. But it's not too late. 
And we really should pray for the people of Israel, for Jewish people. We should pray that they would read their own scriptures and they would just see Jesus. They could still find him and turn to him. Listen to what it says in 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is the Lord speaking. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Hallelujah. That's still there for them. That opportunity is still there. But in Christ Jesus, those of us that believe in him, we have the assurance that we have been forgiven. Jesus, he who says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And elsewhere says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And also says to the disciples on that last supper, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. The old way has been swept aside by the tidal wave of his blood. The old way of doing things, as we read in verse 9 in our passage here, is an illustration for the present time, an illustration indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. It's an illustration. All that they were doing for centuries was just an illustration, like a parable, if you like. The whole tent, the way it was set out, and the tent in the middle, the cube, um, the tabernacle, the contents, the ritual sacrifices, the burning of incense, the spring of earth, all of that. It's just a giant parable that existed for centuries of the kingdom yet to come and is now here for us. The kingdom throne room where the mercy seat is in heaven. And the rituals of the high priest are a parable for the Messiah who would make it all obsolete. Verse 10 in our passage, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. See, the writer really makes it clear to those Hebrews, it's just all about food and drink and ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. And the new order has come, my friends. It is here today. He is, we had another big word this morning, didn't we? Omniscient, omnipresent, always here watching over you. Always here longing for us to turn to him, to turn and be saved. Turn to him even tonight. Turn to him and ask for forgiveness for forgiveness and he will forgive you and he will heal you because he is the high priest the high priest in the new order so my second point tonight is the new order let's look again at this passage entitled the blood of Christ if you look in your Bibles there verse 11 but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. So there is this greater tabernacle in heaven. We can only imagine what it must be like. And I'm reminded of Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, where we, we see him saying in, in Acts 7 verse 48, talking to the Sanhedrin, however, the Most High 
does not live in houses made by human hands. There's another witness to it. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? So heaven is his throne. That is where his mercy seat is now. And Paul, the apostle, confirmed this in his speech to the Athenians at the Areopagus in Acts 17, when he stood up before the men of Athens, and he said this in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. Again, the, the temple, the, uh, the tabernacle, it's all gone. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He lives in our hearts, built by God's own hands. We are all his creation. He makes us, he builds us, he knits us together in our mother's wombs and our hearts should be a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Christ, Christ Jesus, he came as the high priest and high priest of the good things that we already have here now. Mercy, forgiveness, love, sacrifice, faith, the way, the truth, the life. In the same way that Jesus says in John 14 verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. The high priest in the old tabernacle could not enter, go through that curtain if you like, except on one day a year and with the blood sacrificed in his hands ready to sprinkle on that altar. He must have been terrified, must have been really frightening to be the one who had that responsibility before the holy God, to go into the holy of holies. But Jesus now, he entered the most holy place in heaven, not with the blood in a bottle zone, but by his own blood. He went through by his own blood because he is the perfect, unblemished sacrifice once and for all. And because of that, we also can go through his blood. Of course, the high priest in the old days would go out after the festival and he would sin the very next day and the very next day and he'd have to come back the next year. But Jesus doesn't. It is finished. He has done it. He goes in, not with the blood, but by his own blood. We cannot go in except through him. He is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that too is by his blood. His blood is, if you like, the ticket, the validation, the passport, the stamp. The only thing that gives us access to the eternal throne room is his blood. The eternal mercy seat and the eternal life that Jesus gives us is only accessed through belief in him and through his blood. Psalm 118, the Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. It is marvellous. So we confirm as you read on verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. When I had to uh, apply to get my visa for Saudi Arabia last summer, I almost had to jump through hoops of fire to get this thing. Um, medical certificate, insurance certificate, letters of invitation, proof of business credentials. I had to go up to an office in London, pay a huge sum, go to a certain place, get it. I had to pay for a courier to deliver it back to me, and all that kind of stuff. But now I hear, 
they've scrapped all those rules and regulations. You could now just jump on a plane, fly to Saudi Arabia, and buy a visa on arrival with a little lady at a booth. Just like that. They scrapped it all. How easy is that? But heaven is a destination we should all want stamped in our passport. We all want to go there. And Jesus made it even easier for us. We just need to believe in him, trust in his blood, repent of our sins, turn our lives around and follow him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Verse 14 in our passage. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? I want my conscience to be cleansed. I'm sure you do also. Lord, help us to give it all up to you. Save us, Lord, that we might serve you, the living God. So in conclusion, I think the key verse in this passage quite clearly is verse 14. It sums up what the writer is trying to say. The old tabernacle is obsolete and the blood of Christ is now providing the way to God, the way to eternal life. Because Jesus is our ultimate spotless sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And because of this, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And that, the giving of authority, appointment if you like, if, if you're given a job or if, if the queen appoints you to a position or something in a household, it's a, an appointment. And it, the Lord has, the Lord Jesus now has a divine appointment. He's been given the appointment of high priest. He has that role. That is his job. He is the high priest in heaven and he lives there to intercede between us and our heavenly father. Romans 3 verse 25 says this, God presented, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of, here's the word, atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by us by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And we want to have faith in Jesus. Through the shedding of his blood, we're washed clean. King David longed for this. He longed for this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Lord, cleanse us from our sin. We should be joyful because Jesus has delivered on that promise given to the patriarchs. He has provided a way out, a way. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So let us rejoice in this good news. He has prepared the way. He has prepared a new home for us, as the psalmist writes, and the highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. For it will be for those 
who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. But they will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Amen.